You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here's ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Garrett. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information, whether you've been practicing national security law for years or are a journalist trying to understand the law or a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa, and for this podcast, Elisa P., um, the ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. We're proud to be unbiased. So let's get started. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBard.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Right, today we continue our exploration of private national security law with Elisa Massimino, here and after, Elisa M., who recently stepped down from her post as CEO and President of Human Rights First, where she served for forever, right? For, for over a decade, but it's longer than that, isn't it? I, I started in 1991, wow. so 27 years. 27 years. Elisa, it is really awesome to have you here. If you don't mind, um, uh, let me just give our, our listeners a little bit more background. Um you have gone on now. You're joining Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government as a senior fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. And obviously, you've got uh, a distinguished, a distinguished rather, record of human rights advocacy. And uh, for those who might be interested, you have testified before Congress dozens of times. And as we get into this podcast, it will be apparent why. Um, you write frequently for mainstream publications and specialized journals, and you appear regularly on major media outlets, and you speak to audiences around the country, which we thank you for doing, because part of what we're trying to do is push information out to everyone, uh, because we have the luxury of information here inside the Beltway, and sometimes I think it's not fair that many people don't have access to all that information. Um, but. Uh, you have also, since, 19, since 2008, rather, the influential Washington newspaper called The Hill um, has consistently named you one of the most effective public advocates in the United States. Wow. I would like to have that title. That is something else. Glad you're here. Thanks. It's great to be here. At least John McCain has been quoted as saying that Human Rights First is a premier institution devoted to the noblest of all causes. 
And former Vice President Joe Biden has said of human rights first, I never thought I'd live to see the day when a group of generals was working closely with a human rights group. But of course he did, and of course he said it just exactly that way. <laughs> former UN National Security Advisor Susan Rice has said for more than a decade, human rights first has been a clarion voice, or clarion caller, I guess, in defense of human dignity and the rights and freedoms of people everywhere. So let's go back. How did you find yourself in a career at Human Rights First, and what motivated you to choose this path? Well, it kind of chose me, I guess. Uh, I did not have a plan going into law school or even out of law school. I, I had no idea that this is what I would end up doing. I actually was uh, in a Ph.D. program studying philosophy um, at uh, Johns Hopkins, university after college, and that's what I thought I was going to do, was um, use philosophy to help solve social problems. But it turned out that nobody was that interested in that, (laughs) other than me. Uh, At the time, uh, the field of philosophy was was in, in the 80s, this was in the early 80s, highly technical, and I was interested in ethics and practical ethics. Um... So I, uh, I did not have the idea to go to law school. Actually, I was dating a guy who was. Uh, oh yes, <laughs> I've never heard was, that before. <laughs> he was in my grad school program, and and he was from Michigan, and he had always planned to bail out after a master's degree and go to law school, and I thought. Wow, you know, maybe I could do that. I had so never. This is a little legally blonde, blonde. <laughs> with fur the brunette. <laughs> uh, I didn't know any lawyers. I had never met a lawyer, and I didn't know anything about law school. But um, but the I'm a very practical person. I like to I'm a problem solving kind of person, and that really appealed to me. So I I moved to Ann Arbor. I taught philosophy for about a year at a bunch of colleges and universities around there to make sure that that's what what I didn't want to do um and I I was right about that and and then I went to law school at Michigan and so what happened to the guy let's just get right down to it uh he's not jettisoned (laughs) along the way I I followed him to Washington uh and uh uh, but then we, we parted ways. He's still a lawyer. He actually went back and taught at Michigan for a while. Uh, <laughs> happy Don't birthday, worry, Mark Osbeck. That is, that, that's an interesting thing. So to a degree, I guess you came into your own. I did. And uh, relationship no longer became the motivation. It clearly I really, went deeper. Yeah, I really, you know, it's kind of you sort of bloom where you're planted is my approach. And that's really what happened to me. I, it brought me to Washington. I came here to work for a law firm that had a strong pro bono program because I thought that's a little bit sort of like what I was interested in, you know, sort of applied ethics, problem solving, but I you, still you can, didn't. You can name name and, and claim their credit. Who Which law firm that was that? That was what is now known as Hogan Levels. So that's where I started, um, and I got a wonderful training there, um, but I also got to rotate through what they call the Community Services Department, which was a full-time pro bono program. And uh, that was transformative for me. That's when the light bulb went off and I thought, uh, on, I guess. And I thought, this is really what I was meant to do. But I still had no, I didn't, I didn't know anybody who did that kind of work. And, but I was living in um, Mount Pleasant. And uh, at the time, it was the mid-80s by then, but the late 80s. And 
Through the pro bono program, I started volunteering every Friday at the Latin American Youth Center, which was on the corner of my street, just showing up and using what meager skills that I had at that point to try to help or mostly teenage Salvadoran boys who were fleeing uh, forced recruitment in the Civil War uh, from both sides. And I learned a lot about that. And it's also when I started thinking about and learning about the role of the United States and U.S. policy in creating the situations that caused all these people to flee. Um, and I, I really was animated by that. Um, and then I did a, I did a Pro bono, I represented the American Bar Association in uh, an amicus brief in the Supreme Court, and that was my first time to do something like that. Uh, again, and what was, it was the topic? It was about the um, the right to work for immigrants. So, the, the, in the late '80s, the rule was that um, you know it was it was such a perverse system where people were not permitted to work. Um, uh, they didn't get work authorization, and they weren't entitled to lawyers. You know, so you had a complex legal system that even well-educated people from other countries can't navigate without help. Um, and people here, many of them not speaking English, unable to work and uh, unable to get uh, government-paid uh, legal assistance. Um, some of those problems we're still dealing with today. Um, but that really gave me a window into how I could merge my interest in kind of applied ethics and my legal skills and maybe come up with some kind of a, an actual job. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing because that seems like that would be the type of experience and um, animation, as you've characterized it, that might drive you to work for one of the typical organizations like La Raza or some other sort of legal defense-styled fund? What's What sort of steered you into this, what I would say is sort of very international and uh, military almost focused Well, it, again, that, that really chose me in a way. I was doing so much volunteer work when I was at the firm. I was at that point kind of holding down two, essentially two jobs. I had my day job, which was in the litigation department uh, of the firm representing big companies um, and by night uh, you know, doing asylum cases, doing um, a, a volunteer project for Human Rights First, which was then called the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, a legislative project. Again, something I knew absolutely nothing about. I'd never lobbied. I didn't know how to do that. Everything was kind of on-the-job training for me. Um, but because of that project, which was to draft a statute uh, that would give temporary protected status to um, migrants who were ineligible for refugee status, um, but were nonetheless fleeing dangerous situations, um, that turned into TPS. Um, because of that work, when the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights wanted to open an office in D.C., the person who I had done that work for, uh, Arthur Helton, called and said, I think you should apply for that job. The deadline is today. <laughs> and I was busy, no with my, busy with my work, and I actually knew some people who had applied for that job who were more senior and had way more experience than I did, spoke other languages, had interned in Geneva, and did a lot of international work that I had never done. Um, but I, I had one asset, aside from my uh, enthusiasm, <laughs> uh, 
uh, and passion for the issues. And that was that I um, had experience with Washington law firms and their pro bono culture. Because what they wanted was somebody who could come in and build a pro bono program, which is now thriving here at Human Rights First, that engages the private bar in volunteer, you know, trains them and places uh, asylum cases with them and makes sure that they're successful. And that's what they really wanted, somebody to do that. And um, I'd done several asylum cases, so that made me some kind of expert. And But I did know all the people who cared about pro bono at the different firms because I was part of an effort, again, back, this was back in the 80s, um, during the AIDS crisis where the legal community was just stepping forward to kind of do its own uh, contribution to addressing that crisis. So a bunch of folks in Washington at, at uh, all the big firms really came together and said, we're going to do a, an AIDS walk to raise money. We're going to work with Whitman Walker Clinic to do wills for people uh, who are in the very last stages of their lives. And through that work, which doesn't have anything to do really directly with what I ended up you know, doing at Human Rights First, um, that gave me the skill set and the contacts that they were looking for. Okay, two things here, two big words, two big phrases, skill set and contacts. Very important, <laughs> Very important. to our young listeners. <laughs> Very important. Sounds like incredible work, though. I'd like to talk to you about how your mission over the years at Human Rights First was also about national security law policy. Yes, yeah, so that, I always felt, because I was, my, my interest in human rights came out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, really. I, I'm a, I even wrote a paper about this in law school. They had, this was before there were human rights centers and clinics and all the kinds of things there are in law schools now, but um, there was one class at Michigan on human rights. It was taught by a European who visited every other year. <laughs> and gave one seminar on human rights, and I took it, and it was like, wow, there's something there. And then he vanished. <laughs> uh, but, but through that class, I had read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and, and from history, studying history a little bit, knew some of the context of that. And I, so I always thought about human rights as a, as a security issue. And the Universal Declaration, which has its 70th anniversary this year, um, if you go back and read it now, you, it, it's quite clear that it's really a national security document, a human security mm-hmm. document. It basically says, look, we just came out of the worst disaster the world has ever seen, World War II, genocide, the Holocaust, you know, all this brutality. And we realized, we, the nations of the world, that if we, if we want to never be in that situation again, the key thing we have to do is respect human rights. That's violation of human rights is what was at the core of that disaster. And protection of human rights is what is going to ensure the peace and security of the world going forward. And let's, let's for the uninitiated, um, let's talk about who created that document. This was an international creation and uh, where and what body you will create. Right, so this is around the time the UN was being created and and actually the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the effort was led in large part by Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, 
so you know, there was a, a, a drafting group from different countries. There's a wonderful book, if anyone's interested in the role of Eleanor Roosevelt, but really the development of this, this concept of universal human rights and the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, there's a book called A World Made New, I think, by Marianne Glendon. Uh, and it's an amazing book. Uh, you know, you wonder if, if we didn't have the Universal Declaration and we're starting right now, could we have agree? Could we really reach the same kind of consensus that was reached then? Sometimes I think it takes, you know, something as, as horrifying as the Holocaust and the brutality of World War II to make people realize that we have to, you know, our, our existence, our very uh, existence is at stake if we don't invest in mechanisms for protecting these rights. Uh, so that's where the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came from. Uh, it's, it's not a treaty, it's a declaration, but out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came uh, a number of human rights treaties that uh, have much more specific obligations in them for states that become a party to those treaties that are meant to kind of operationalize the ideas in the Universal Declaration. But it is a document that's worth going back to and reading. You know, a lot of UN documents seem very dry and very, you know, the language is mired and the meaning is really mired in all this kind of diplomatic speak. Um, but the Universal Declaration is uh, really quite straightforward, and it asserts the inherent dignity of all members of the human family and tries to tease out what does that really mean in every aspect of life. And I mean, I think to a degree that's what the founders also tried to do with the Declaration of Independence and the preamble to the Constitution. Exactly. Um, and that provided inspiration for the Universal Declaration. Yes. And um, you know, there are, of course, other conventions that uh, we still deal with today in a context I hope we'll discuss uh, in this podcast, but things like the Geneva Convention um, and other things. CERD, CEDAW, Elimination of the Universal Yes, uh, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, mm. the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the Convention again on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Geneva Conventions, which really, um, the Geneva Conventions of 1949, uh, those came out of, um, and those were have been very important in recent years in the United States on the question of the relationship between what we often talk about is national security here, issues post 9-11 in particular about the interrogation, detention, and treatment of detainees uh, in wartime. And, uh, you know, the, Garrett, you asked about the national relationship between national security. You know, I ended up in the post 9-11 period, I never knew anything about the Geneva Conventions. I had never read them. My father served in the military, so I'd heard of them, but I didn't really study them in school. Nobody did back then. Um, now we have this whole uh, field of national security law that has developed mostly post 9-11 um, and has been shaped very much by the experience of 9-11. But 
I ended up spending, you know, way more of my time after 9-11 and thinking about the human rights consequences of our country's responses to 9-11 in that period, you know, than I ever did before. Most of my time before that uh, and most of Human Rights First's energies were focused on the human rights policies of other governments uh, and trying to change those through leveraging U.S. influence. Um, but, you know, after 9-11, particularly with the implementation of what was called the enhanced interrogation uh, policies, the torture of people in U.S. custody, violations of the Geneva Conventions and all that, when the U.S. violates those treaties, it's obviously uh, way more damaging than if any other country violates uh, those those rules because the U.S. was so instrumental in helping to build, Creating. create those those uh, norms and structures and enforcing them over time. And because we have the most forwardly deployed military of any country on earth, our people benefit more from those rules. And, and so it's not hard looking back now to see that the people who would have the greatest stake in preserving the integrity of those rules would be people in the military. So that's why we ended up working so closely with this group of about a hundred retired generals and admirals who were really concerned about the drift away from uh, fidelity to those rules. We're going to end this episode with Elisa Massimino here, but join us again next week for part two of our conversation with her about the intersection between human rights and national security law. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. You can find us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. Listening to a podcast and following us on social media is greatly appreciated, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.